0: A. W. Tozer once said, The Bible has a great deal to say about suffering, and most of it is encouraging. We, we bumped into one of those places in First Peter three, eighteen through twenty-two. So turn there, please, for our study this morning. Now, why Tozer said most is because some parts in the Bible are about how unbelievers will suffer in hell. Some of the messages are just reality checks to believers to remember that all who desire to live godly will be persecuted or like what Jesus said In John 15, I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I mean, sometimes suffering sounds like that. But listen, Tozer is right. Most of what the Bible has to say about suffering as Christians is encouraging because there is an underlying thing. Uh, an undercurrent, if you will, uh, a watermark, if you will, behind all of it. What? The watermark is this victory in Jesus. And we should never forget that is the watermark to all of our suffering victory in Jesus. The sufferings of Christ always triumph in Christ's suffering. And so Peter's lesson for us is don't get down, don't lose hope, don't despair, don't get discouraged, don't look at rejection or insult and get low. This is, could be your greatest time of victory. That is Peter's message to you in all of your suffering. Why say that? Because it was for Jesus. Jesus, in his greatest time of suffering, had his greatest time of victory. That's the thing to pull away and that's for us that is our encouragement and oh that we in the words of Paul in Philippians 3 that we would share in his sufferings why should we want to share in his sufferings to share in his victory so let us put before us the verses that we have been studying and that we would like to study and to finish studying this morning, 1 Peter 3, 18-22, and allow me to read from God's holy word aloud, and you just listen or follow along in your Bibles. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience." Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, how does Peter encourage all believers with the sufferings of Jesus? I mean, why does a believer even need encouragement in that area? Let me give you a few reasons why a believer needs encouragement in the area of suffering. We could go back to John 15 and 16 and say, first of all, because they're promised. Because sufferings are promised. Second Timothy 3:12, right? I mean, I mean, you, you make it your aim to live for Christ, to walk like Him, to talk like Him, to act like Him, and you know what the Bible says? You are going to be roughed up by the world. And I tell you, because that promise is real, we need encouragement, don't we? I mean, you bring the light to that room, you turn... By the way, I mean, that's the sovereign reason. God says darkness hates... Hates light and so you bring the light to that room and you turn the lights on with your life and and you turn it on with wisdom and with biblical thinking and I'll tell you what, you're going to get a reaction. You always do. And oftentimes it looks like this. So you think you're holier than thou. You think you're high and mighty. You think you've got all the answers. And they hate it promise. You are going to get a reaction. And by the way, before you run too quickly to say they, don't, don't forget you. You were there to you. And it took the Lord saving you to get you to understand that. So we need encouragement in the area of suffering for Jesus because those sufferings are promised. Secondly, Because sufferings are preconditioned. They're preconditioned. You read Romans 8, 18 through 27, and what it tells us is that creation feels those sufferings. Creation is, is letting us know all about it. There's a reason why we have four seasons. It is as though it's an illustration to us that creation suffers And groans. And every spring, it seems like maybe the life is here for good. And then we go through summer and it's exciting. And in fall, things start to die again. And you get in the winter and you realize it didn't last. And so... Sufferings are pre-conditioned, creation feels it, and it wants to be freed from all the suffering that it is subjected to. Verse 23 of Romans 8, even we ourselves groan, Paul says. I mean, we go through life groaning, don't we? Some of you say, yeah, it only took me about two minutes, but when I got out of my bed, I was already there. Verse 25 of Romans 8, it, it takes perseverance to live through it. Because of the curse, this life is on a suffering path. And in fact, you can even read about that very suffering all over the place there in Genesis 3, which even includes not only women having children, but it says raising them. The world fights the suffering... We understand it differently. God uses it, and that's what 1 Peter 3 is telling us. I'll give you a third reason why you need encouragement. Because sufferings can be perplexing. Sufferings can be perplexing. Second Corinthians 12. I mean, I want you to think about this here. Here's Paul, the great theologian, the guy that's preaching the gospel everywhere, who's responsible for like 13 epistles in the New Testament, and he prays, as he has this thorn in his flesh, he prays, Lord, would you please remove it? And he prays that three times, and I think after the third time he realized it's not happening. He is in this suffering, and he's perplexed why he has to go through this. You ever have that moment? This 2 Corinthians 12 moment is... For Paul was kind of a why me. You ever have that moment? Why me? I mean, there are other people. Look at that guy over there. He's not even wanting to live for you. Give him the sufferings. It can be perplexing. He he prayed three times for the Lord to take it away. Do you remember how the Lord answered Paul's prayer for the suffering to be removed? He said this my grace is sufficient. For you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. That's a wonderful, elaborative way of saying no, right? What he was saying to Paul was, You need this weakness, you need this to experience my grace. You don't see it, but you need it. So that's another reason why we need encouragement, because it can sometimes the sufferings can be perplexing. Fourth, because sufferings are providential, we need encouragement because sufferings are providential. Philippians one nineteen: For to you it is, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. Granted? Yeah, and that word "granted." is the same word that's used to describe something that's been decreed or ordained before even the foundation of the world it's been granted God has granted you this not only does it convey that but it also has it conveys the idea of it being a privilege hey you've been separ- you've been separated for this you ought to see that this is a special place for you It is connected to God's decree in some way. And I don't believe that's a negative. But at the time, we can sometimes feel it negatively. And you know, in in that context, Paul was, was just saying, if you're going to be committed to preaching the gospel, you're going to suffer. It's all part of the deal. God has kind of put that into that. Fifth, and we'll just leave it with this one. There's a bunch more that we could have. But let's just say, because sufferings are pruning. Because sufferings are pruning. Listen to this one. First Thessalonians 3, 2. We sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Now watch this. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Verse 4. We told you in advance that we were going to suffer. Verse 5, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. What is, now what's Paul saying in all that? This. I wondered if with all the suffering in your life that I knew was going to happen, and all the suffering in our lives, that it was going to shake your faith. I wondered about that. I was concerned. I thought maybe you might look at it all and and say, whoa, what should I believe about Christianity now? This is all part of God's pruning work, Paul says, and I wanted you to understand that, and I wanted to see if you understood that. But that can discourage us when we don't realize it. So those are five reasons why we need encouragement. and Peter writes what he writes and he gives us the greatest of them. Peter writes to believers who are suffering and he wants to encourage them. How can he encourage them with the sufferings of Jesus Christ when he went to the cross? And so there are four lessons for us from Jesus's victory in his suffering. Let's consider them, first of all, the lesson from his unique death, verse 18. You remember that one? It was a sin-bearing death. The victory was that the just died for the sins of the unjust once for all. Why? To bring us to God. There's victory in that, right? In other words, he knew what the death is going to, was going to accomplish. He suffered death in our place. And you remember that literally brought us to God. He bore sin to bring us to God Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, that is a a penalty, a punishment for you. That's the payment for your, your sin. You get death. Jesus, in dying for us, took that for us as a substitute. We couldn't get to God any other way. And so the lesson is our suffering can impact the salvation of others. The nearness that a person has to, to God. Did you realize that? Have you realized that about going through sufferings? That it is possible that the Lord is wanting you to go through them so that you might taste the victory of seeing another come to know Him? That's phenomenal. Second lesson from Jesus' victory and suffering, a lesson from his unmatched proclamation, verses 18 to 20. And we looked at this last week. Now you remember we told you that Peter takes us from the cross all the way to the ascension in, in heaven in this victory procession. But you have these little stops. And so the next stop would happen right after he closed his eyes in physical death. His spirit went to the spirits in prison. You say, oh boy, that's where I my brain stopped working last time. You said that and I went, ah, don't know what to do with that. Well, that's why we had to spend so much time explaining that. Why did his spirit go to the spirits in prison after dying on the cross? Because the spirits in prison... Were demons from Noah's day sent to prison by God. And so the point is to make a proclamation of victory there. I don't know about you, but I wanted, as I was going through this study, and I was, I was preaching even last week, I couldn't do two things at the same time, so I, so I did the one, I, I, I preached the sermon. But during the sermon, I just want you to know, I was just shouting hallelujah in my mind the whole time. You just didn't know that. I just so, so excited. He did that. He made this victory proclamation. Now, there are lots of views about that. I'll give you some of them. One view Jesus offered the gospel for a second chance to the re- rebellious ones from Noah's day. That, that's one view. Another view. Well, maybe this is when Jesus went to hell to pay Satan for the souls of the ones that he wanted to save. And that's called the ransom theory. Another one, maybe maybe what Jesus did is he, he just he preached the gospel to the demons, to which I think why? Because they can't be saved. You remember I told you I had a few more notes on this and so I want to share them with you. So here we go. This I felt like this guy kinda of helped cleared it up for me, uh, in terms of being able to communicate what happened here. D. Edmund Hebert. You're always you always sound smarter when you have three names, by the way, you know, it's kind of the, I love that. My parents uh didn't give me a middle name, so they probably knew what was coming. You know, it's like, uh you're probably not gonna be one of those, so you know. You're going to have to study a little extra harder than the rest. D. Edmund Hebert answers that, uh, quoting uh, this guy by the name of France, R.T. France, on verse 19. Listen, France observes that the statement in verse 22 that all spiritual powers are subject to Christ would cohere better with a proclamation of his victory than with an offer of salvation. He further remarks, the purpose of the letter... To boost the morale of persecuted Christians would be better served by a mention of Christ's triumphing over evil powers than of an offer of salvation to them. The apocryphal story of Enoch's mission to the fallen angels, which was familiar to the apostle Peter, involves a proclamation of judgment, not of mercy. First. Enoch 14, verses 4 through 5. Now, that's apocryphal. That's not in the Bible. France goes on to say, We do not believe that Peter said that Christ preached the gospel to those imprisoned spirits. He taught that Christ announced his triumph over evil, which was bad news for them. For Peter's readers, however, it meant comfort and encouragement. End quote. Yeah. He said it. That was basically what I was trying to say last week. Now you remember we're talking about those demons who sinned in Genesis 6. They came and... and Probably possess humans and engage in gross immorality. Jude six says, "Strange flesh." Second Peter two, and they seduce the daughters of men. And you remember the plan. The plan was to make mankind unredeemable. Now, why would they do this? Well, they went right to it, right after Genesis three. Right in Genesis three, we have the statement that says the seed was going to crush the head of the serpent, the head of Satan. And so, to make it so that the seed of Genesis 3 that would crush Satan and his rebellion would never happen, they did this. And by the way, we tried to show you historically, in the Bible you can see... Satan has always been trying to accomplish that in lots of various ways. And by the time you get to Genesis 6, we see there in Genesis 6 verse 5 and Genesis 6 verse 11 that the world is in this absolute pervasive evil everywhere. And you think it's bad now, you remember there are only two places where it's spoken of as the days of Noah. One is here, the days of Noah, okay? And then you have the time right before Christ comes back, the days of Noah. Those are the most evil days historically, And what made them evil back then is that you had this just massive uh, influ- demonic influence everywhere. And that's why God drowned the world in a flood with all its evil. All but eight people were evil with this demonic activity. If you want to understand how bad it was, all but eight. Imagine that. On this earth, imagine there only being eight Christians. Eight. Now that's why, by the way, Colossians 2 says Jesus made a spectacle spectacle of them on the cross. He had to. And so Jesus goes right up to that prison after God made his spirit alive after death and he proclaimed victory. Now, as I was working this through again, one of the questions that I figured I better answer is from a text in Matthew 22. And I can just hear a person saying, Wait a minute, Pastor. What about Matthew twenty-two thirty, Where Jesus says about believers, when we die, they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, angels don't marry. What do you have to say about that? All right. Jesus says angels don't marry and by that implying angels don't marry other angels. So how does that view that says the demons went and intermarried with the daughters of men work? Well, we need to put together what Jude in 2 Peter 2 and Genesis 6 and 1 Peter 3 says. The demons okay, left their abode, right? They left their abode. Now, it's very important that you not think, okay, there's heaven, there's hell, and some in between whatever place. We shouldn't think that way. In Job, the demons were in heaven. Satan himself, when the Lord said, hey, come here, I want to talk to you. There is this outside of earth dimension that we know so very little about. So we just kind of take the things that we see in scripture and put these things together that way. They left their proper abode. They left heaven. The demons, by the way, didn't marry other angels. You remember who they attached themselves to? Humans daughters of men. And so we're not talking about fallen angels marrying each other. We're talking about fallen angels leaving their domain to cohabitate with humans. Why did they do that? To corrupt humanity. It's very simple. And boy, did they. With only eight left after they were done. Boy, no, no wonder God drowned the whole world. Have you ever wondered that? I think because we foolishly think to ourselves, well, but I bet there were some nice people and everything that were just trying to, you know, maybe pet turtles and, and you know, maybe they were rescuing little, you know, sparrows from, you know, a danger and all that. You know, I mean, I mean, come on, you know. Wasn't the world a little bit like ours and everything? Again, I want to remind you, days of Noah. No, it wasn't. It was just gross immorality. That's how it describes it. By the way, I read John MacArthur's comments on this and he he made a great point worth noting. Demon activity, false teachers, that is the people with the doctrines of demons, are always, and you can look this up, you can read it for yourself, go find it. In fact, you want to just go read 2 Peter 2 or Jude, you'll see that this is true, are always connected with perverted living along with their perverted teaching. And the one perverted living that they are always connected to, is sexual immorality. Not surprising that they came and lured the daughters of men with gross immorality. That is with sexual sin. And the whole world was just pervasively dominated by this. is that Jesus goes to these that are now incarcerated, never to be let out. And he says, you lost. Genesis 3 has been fulfilled. All right, let's move to our third lesson about victory and suffering from Jesus. Number three from his unbelievable salvation picture here in verses 20 and 21. Now we're talking about a a victorious salvation, victory in what salvation accomplished. Now follow this along. Peter's talking about the days of Noah, right? So watch this, verse 20. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. During the construction of the ark. Now that's a key turn right there. Peter now is thinking about the construction of the boat, right? The ark. And by the way, they have put that thing together. Uh, to give us a kind of a, a replication of it there in the Cincinnati uh, area, Kentucky area there, the uh, art museum, the Ark Museum, whatever it's called. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's amazing. That this thing is Ken Ham and his ministries. You have done this. Um, so that thing's pretty big. If you ever seen pictures of it, it's very big. But you have this ark. And Peter's thinking about this construction of it, this giant houseboat. He so what about it? He says, look at it. In which a few, okay, contrast that to the many that died in the flood because of the evil in this world brought on by the demons and the violence and the immorality, right? Those eight persons were brought safely through the water. So Peter wants to talk about the victory of eight people brought safely Through the water. Through a worldwide destruction. Through a massive flood that destroyed humanity. Now, before we move on to talk about water baptism in the next verse, let me help you with kind of where we're going. The waters in verse 20 destroyed humanity that's a little different than baptism waters if you ask me and you can see that right so if water is our connection here we probably need to explain how is it that in verse 20 they are destructive waters But in verse 21, they're saving waters. I think that's very important because it's going to help you to understand that's the reason why we're not talking about this tank that's right behind me where we baptize people and immerse them in water. We're going to get to that. I just thought I would kind of prime the pump, all right? He wants to talk about, Peter, the victory of eight people, victory in that. And he connects it to salvation. Only eight believed on this earth. Peter wants to use that picture to talk about what salvation accomplished. All right. Now, you remember Noah. Noah we got to think about some different features here. And, and, um, and even uh, Peter would want us to do this because, you know, he's Jewish. And he's kind of wants us to, we're going to walk through his steps, kind of travel his path. 2 Peter 2, here we go. Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That's what 2 Peter 2 tells us. Now, there are so many people that think that Noah's main job was to build a boat. He did do that. But his main job, 2 Peter 2.5, was to preach righteousness. That was his main job. Now, let me tell you this. All good preachers have illustrations. His happened to be a ginormous boat. Okay? And it was there all the time. And he could be preaching and pointing, right? That's what that was all about. He was to preach righteousness. And what does that mean? It means this, be righteous or die in judgment by God. Be righteous or die in judgment by God. Those are your two choices. That's what Peter preached. How do you get righteous? Genesis 6. It says this. Noah was a righteous man, a blameless man. He walked with God. But now listen, most importantly, verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor means grace. Let me read it with that as a translation. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord's grace made Noah all of those things. Don't get it wrong. It's not... Noah was blameless, Noah was righteous, Noah did all these things. So God said, I'm going to splash some grace on you. That's the wrong view. Noah found grace in the Lord, and therefore he was righteous, he was blameless, he walked with God. And so when it says that he was a preacher of righteousness it means he was a preacher of God's grace. He connected the righteousness of God to the grace of God for the people. Say, how could he possibly do that? Simple. You are sinners sitting exceedingly see this boat right over here? God's grace. See it? You, sinner, boat, God's grace. Got it? Get in. Say, could it have fit people? Well, we know. I mean, it would have fit a lot. It's a big boat. But that wasn't the reason why they didn't get in. the boat represented god's grace see you know who received god's grace only eight people noah his wife three sons and their three wives but the boat also represented another thing god's judgment and so the ark was god's means for their deliverance from his judgment God judged, but God also provided grace, provided salvation. That is at the core, at the heart of understanding salvation. You might say, but what about the others? When Noah preached God's grace in his righteousness, that also meant God's judgment for 120 years, he did this for 120 years. That's what the, 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 the those years represent, or under, how we're supposed to understand them. I would say that preaching God's grace and connecting it to the righteousness of God for 120 years would mean that the people are without excuse, right? Now, think a little. Think a little more. That means the Ark of grace took them from a world of evil and carried them through the waters of judgment right into the newness of life when they walked off the boat. You seeing it? Did you catch all that? They were in the middle of the judgment but protected from it and safely brought through the water. Protected in the ark. Delivered in the ark. Having gone through the waters of judgment. They survived judgment. You know what a believer is? A believer is one who has survived judgment. So, well, God hasn't even judged already. Oh, yes, he has. For the believer, he has. In Christ, right? That's our picture. All right, now we can go to verse 21. So that I, set, I wanted to set it up so that now we can go to verse 21. Take a look at it. Now, these first three words are the most important words corresponding to that. It's a very interesting word. I, I believe it's the most important word for our point. The Greek word is antitupos. Anti We get our word antitype from it. The word means the exactness of correspondence between the stamp and the die. Okay? So here we go. You've got the stamp, you've got the die. The stamp then takes right? It gets put into the ink and make you it's it's to make that die to kind of be a a replication. Let me give you an example of how this word was used. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but in the heaven itself. Hear that word copy? That's our word, antitupus. In other words, the art going through the judgment waters to safety was just a picture of something else. It was a copy from the die. And by the way, I'm going to show you, you can look at it in that order and reversed as well. But let's look at it from that way. What is it a copy of? What did it picture? Our salvation. You can look at it the other way too. Our salvation and how it was accomplished is the same picture as the grace ark. Carrying the elect ones through the judgment waters safely to the dry ground. There you go. That's, that's That's what that is. In other words, it is an analogy from physical life to a spiritual truth. All right, now let's look at the next phrase. we got to take this thing piece by piece so you can understand this. Because I tell you what, this is a verse that's been very misunderstood and uh, therefore misapplied. Peter says, baptism now saves you. Now that's the thing the arc picture corresponds to. All kinds of people, you know, See that, and they say, "What baptism saves you?" Two things help us understand what Peter's talking about: grammar and context. Okay, and when we get through this, I think you're going to be you're going to be good. All right, grammar and context. Now, the word baptisma, which is that's the noun, literally means immersion or submersion. Back then, if you would have gone to a person. If you would have used this word, baptism, in a sentence, they would not have thought about being dunked in water. And that is, uh, as a ceremonial rite. That would not be the first thing that would come to their mind. That word later on came to signify baptism as we know it. The word for that is transliteration. And what that just means is that it it goes beyond, the, the, the actual literal word becomes the meaning of it later on. So the word actually just means immersion or even submersion. In fact, Peter has not used the word baptisma as a ceremonial word to mean baptism at all. You won't find it anywhere. So it should read, immersion now saves you. The immersion saves you. Just like the immersion and all the protection from a boat made like God told Noah to make, save them in the ark. Immersion now saves you. The boat had to go through the waters for the salvation of the people to take place. Now context also helps too There's no place in the entire Bible where it says that water baptism saves a single person. Nowhere. This would be the only place. So be careful. Before you take one verse and make a whole religion out of it, okay? Or a whole denomination, whatever you want to make. Be careful because this would be the only verse. That word that you use, I do not think it means what you think. There's no place where it says a ceremonial washing of water gives a person salvation. In fact, the only groups of people that I could find that talk like that were the Pharisees. Now they kind of thought things like that. You can do ceremonial washings and be good. Mark 7, why do your disciples not wash I mean, you know, and go through the ceremonial rites like we do? And Jesus says, you people have got it all wrong. You've turned everything upside down on its head. And you think that something that goes into a stomach is going to defile a person. It's what comes out of the heart. And what Jesus was trying to say is, you're so locked in onto the physical that you don't understand the spiritual of it all. So we have to understand these things. There are places where it talks about the spiritual kind, though. You'll find lots of those. Titus 3, the washing of regeneration. Regeneration. John 3, you must be born again of water and spirit. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will save you from all your uncleanness. And there it's talking about getting salvation, being saved spiritually. So can I just say this plainly? It is not true that water baptism saves you. Because the Bible doesn't teach that water baptism saves you. He's talking about the kind of safety that is similar to being in an ark, a grace boat that is a safe place against destruction, against the waters of judgment. That's what he's talking about. Notice verse 21. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. This is amazing that people miss this. I, I, I really can't believe this. Not, it's, you know what he's saying there? Not the physical kind, okay? I mean, how much clearer can I make this? Not the kind that is, that is water that would remove dirt, not the ritual kind. Not a ritual like a baptism service where you go into waters and come up all clean. I'm not talking about that. You know, Peter knew they would go there. He's like, I I know what you guys are going to do. You we're prone to do that. We're going to make this into some ritual ceremony thing where people can be baptized in a tank and you can say there's that they're saved because of that. Not talking about the physical ceremony. What's he talking about? He tells us. But an appeal to God for a good conscience. I'm talking about A saving like going through destructive waters that happens when you appeal to God for a good conscience. Notice too, when you appeal to God for that conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has been risen, you can get this conscience that will allow you to get through the waters of of destruction safely. That's what he's saying. So, I mean, if we have to call it a, a baptism, we're talking about a baptism into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the kind we're talking about. And we have to work that out. That salvation picture from Genesis 6 through 9 a little bit more. Now, what was the flood? It was God's justice, right? God's judgment against mankind's evil. I mean, he killed everyone, all but eight. Millions on this earth wiped out, but God put eight of them into an ark, okay? The ark faced all the water, all the rain, immersed into all the water of God's judgment against the sin of man. It had to be something that was made with the pitch that could be water-resistant, that would allow for water on all sides, up, down, and all around, to encounter but do nothing. The ark was protection against judgment. And it got the eight to safety. You could say it this way The Ark was the protection from God's wrath. In a sense, the ark was buried into that water, covered, it was swallowed up, and but the ark was a protection too. It's not already see what he's saying here person is saved when he places faith in God's protection who's that? Jesus Christ on the basis of what? the death, burial and resurrection Jesus Christ is our protection what did he do? well he faced the wrath of God he was immersed into the death waters he protected us from His wrath, and then dropped us onto the dry ground of new life. And He came out of that living, out of that thing, a newness of life, because Jesus Christ lives now by resurrection. And so we share in that newness of life. He say, "Is there a section of Scripture that actually says that?" Boy, I'm glad you said that. Romans 6.4, listen to this. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism in the death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. As Peter says, he says to Paul, amen. He agrees with him. So really 1 Peter 3.21 speaks of union with Christ in that immersion. a picture of our salvation a picture of how Jesus accomplished it for us but it's even deeper than that we got to go further you left the world of sin your sin and the world of it just like those eight did that's the picture I mean, they were making a statement against the evil world by getting into the boat. And so you entered the ark by faith. You came to Jesus Christ, the ark for us. You came to him for new life, for safety from sin. John 10, you entered in. Hebrews 10, you entered by a new and living way. You entered in. What did you face? The battering waves of judgment against you. Now Christ faced those on the cross in a penal way. Right? God's wrath, he took our place, but there's more. You still face battering waves of sin and suffering, and I believe that's the connection he's making here. That's the, the, the context, the connection of to 1 Peter 3, where where are you safe in the ark? Who's our ark? Christ. There was a kind of resurrection when the ark ended up on Mount Ararat, on the dry land, when they stepped out into newness of life. You know what the ark was? The ark was a coffin. It was like entering into death. And that's just what you entered into, a death box. It's grace, but it's also death. This is why when you try to proclaim Christ, you try to really give people the gospel. It maybe can seem so difficult, but it is actually that simple. It is both death and grace all together. When you entered into Christ, you died. You entered into death. Galatians 2.20, death to you, not water baptism, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, not ceremonial water, immersion into Christ. That's what you entered into. For what? Newness of life. And that newness is dependent on one thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the same way as Genesis 8, God had to remove the waters and open the door he did that by the resurrection of Christ. That's what gave you newness of life. And God opened the door to that kind of life for you. Then, will you notice another thing? Noah and his family didn't avoid the judgment due to sin. They faced it. They went through it. Because they were in the ark, they were protected. Instead of judgment, they were brought safely to God. I think that's the point that Peter was making here. You're safe because of Christ. Now we have to look at the the last phrase, that last phrase for this point. It's so helpful, it's so good. It's in the middle. Verse 21 but an appeal to God for a good conscience. The word appeal, it means to ask a question, but it's emphatically. It's an emphat- the way it is worded in the Greek, it's an emphatic way of saying it. It is to make an inquiry. And it can also mean to make a pledge or declaration of commitment or a commitment to a covenant. Follow this. Now, I don't think that we ourselves are going to declare anything to God. What are you going to declare to God? We don't go to God to tell Him anything. We make make no demands on Him. None. We only make appeals, right? We only make requests. This word was often used when trying to agree on the conditions of some covenant that was made, you know, um, or contract. So what are we going to God for? Listen, this is this thing that we came to God with as we entered into the grace ark, the death box. We made a request for something. What, what did we, we make a request for? Look at it, it says it. A good conscience. Did you know that that's what salvation is? It's a good conscience. A request for a good conscience. The Bible says all our lives as unbelievers are with a bad conscience. Guilt. And the more you get the law, the more you get that preached to you, the more you get convinced... Stronger and stronger of the guilt that you are separate from God as his enemy. That you have an evil conscience, an unredeemed one. Salvation is coming to Jesus Christ for a good conscience. It's confessing to God that all you have is an evil conscience. I'm coming to the boat, Lord. I, I'd like to get in, but i got to be honest. I have nothing to give you. And all I have is this evil conscience. You don't have a good one, and you're wanting Him to give you a good one. That's what salvation is. Listen to Hebrews 9.14. In case you think that I'm like over blowing this up. How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works? He's talking about application of the blood of Christ to the believer for forgiveness. Later, Hebrews 10.22, talking about coming to Jesus Christ for salvation. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What Peter is saying, same thing the Hebrews says, same thing that Paul says in Romans 6, is that Jesus Christ accomplished victory and salvation just like Noah and his crew were saved from the judgment water against sin when they entered in. And for all those who are weighed down by the guilt of their conscience, you can come to a Savior who is immersed at the cross for your sins and raised to life to give you life. And all you have to do is enter into the grace boat, the death box of Christ who will protect you from God's judgment against sin now I know that's a mouthful, but that's that's what that's what this is teaching, beloved. It's incredible, isn't it? I'm still saying hallelujah. So what saves you? Immersion into the ark of Christ. I would be remiss to not say this next thing. Have you entered in? Have you entered in? Have you trusted him for salvation? You can. You do know he will cause something worse than a worldwide flood when he finally judges for all sins. How are you going to make it? Listen, you won't. They mocked Noah. What a fool preacher of righteousness Him and seven others were saved. I'm trying to spare you by telling you this. I'm no Noah, but I'll tell you, any time you preach Christ and his righteousness, you are building the boat. But you must enter in. Yeah, they'll mock you for it. But you must. Come to him, to covenant with him. For grace, for obedience in the freedom of a new good conscience. You know, there are a lot of people that misunderstand this verse. Baptism now saves you. i tell you what, you can get baptized, and you can get dunked into water, and you can have some ceremony with water, and you can get wet, but that doesn't save you. Will you notice that Noah and his family were dry in the boat? Got to get in the boat. It's not talking about having some sort of baptism ceremony But I know why those religions want the ceremony. And I'll tell you why right here. Because they don't want the good conscience. They don't actually want Christ. They want salvation without the Savior. And that's why they want the ceremony. Don't be like that. All right, last point for us. Last lesson. First lesson of the victory of Jesus and his sufferings from his unique death. Second, from his unmatched proclamation. Third, from his unbelievable salvation picture. Last one, from his unequivocal exaltation. I had to just give it to you. I wasn't sure that you spent way too much time trying to figure out how to spell that one. I know I would. So I had to give it to you. Verse 22. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Now this is the point about the victory of Jesus from the fact that he is supreme over all. This is what happened after his ascension. He died. His spirit was made alive. And so he went to the demons of prison. He rose from the dead to save us. And then he ascended into heaven. Notice to do what? To sit. What's it mean to sit? He's finished. But he's not resting. Don't misunderstand. He's interceding. Romans 8 says he prays for us. All right. The right hand of God is the hand of supremacy. It's the highest, it's the seat of the highest majesty, the highest rank of all. It's the greatest position. It's the place of authority. Now, the message of being at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, is that his work is done. Great victory in that, right? Hebrews 1 3 and he is the radiance of his glory, an exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Now he tells us this because. The last thing the world saw was a suffering Jesus on the cross, a dying Jesus. Jesus only revealed Himself to 500 believers on this earth after His resurrection. And so He's telling us, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the One who is God, who keeps all things together. Verse 3, listen to why He is next to the Father in heaven. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they verse 6 let all the angels of god worship him i mean that's the scene in heaven peter tells us when that happened after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him start about the demon angels Babylon's, same language in the rest of Scripture, Colossians 2, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 6. Jesus is in the seat of honor, the seat of power, the seat of authority. Now, to this end, to end this whole deal here, let me give you a few thoughts. I want you to see that Scripture makes a big deal about this. All are subject to Him. He is exalted. Hebrews 10.12, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2, endured the cross, despised the shame, has sat down at the right hand of God. Romans 8.32, delivered over for us all. Verse 34, Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Ephesians one twenty: when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly place, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and He put all things in subjection under His feet. Philippians 2, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name above every name, on and on and so forth. It goes... We should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Now, why make this point, Peter? Proverbs 15.33 is the answer. Before honor comes humility. Suffering is the path to glory. The exaltation comes through the suffering. That's why there can be victory in suffering. Peter says, your unjust suffering, believer, is the path of victory. It was for Christ, it is for you. Romans 8, 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus is our example. That's how we go through suffering go through it like victors. There's victory in it. And the pain only reminds us of our Lord's gain. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for um, this incredible salvation that we have in Christ Help us now, Lord, as we seek to understand your Your word, Lord, to apply it to our lives. What an incredible salvation, Lord, that we can draw from and that forever in heaven we'll be singing, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.